This podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. I'm revisiting some of my favorite episodes this month. Today's pick is my conversation with comedian Jon Stewart. We spoke just months ago in March. He had taken a long hiatus after retiring from The Daily Show in 2015, and he was just emerging with a new Apple TV Plus show, The Problem with Jon Stewart. So I probed the comeback kid about his long break and his new show. And if he could do it all over again, whether he'd choose to leave his podium just before Donald Trump became president. Take a listen. John Stewart, welcome to Sway. <laughs> what are you laughing already? <laughs> no, that was, it was, it was, uh, uh, would you have chosen to leave knowing Donald Trump uh, was going to be there? And I think the, the answer would be resounding. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Okay, yeah. we'll get to that. But l- let's start first with what's going on in the news right now. Russia's invading Ukraine on a scale we haven't seen since World War II. Right. Putin put Russia's nuclear forces on special alert. Um, it doesn't seem to be going very well for Putin at the same time. I'd love to get, like, if you were making a daily show right now, how would you cover this? And how do you look at this crisis right now? Uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that are really difficult to cover because of the human element. Uh, generally, the first order of attack would be on the powers that be, and the second order of attack would be on the way that the media covers the powers that be. In these types of situations, actually, the media generally shows what they're capable of. You know, this is it's the kind of crisis that their infrastructure and 24-hour, you know, kind of seven days a week urgency matches the moment. So it's one of those situations where you really go, oh, right, this is what they're built for. They seem to have moved beyond the, you know, crisis in Ukraine. Let's bring on Van Jones and Rick Santorum. What do you think? (laughs) You know, they've moved beyond that kind of paradigm. So chances are what we would do, I think, is try and find an absurdity, but also recognizing that the immediacy of the human tragedy is one that you have to always be cognizant of. You can't be, you know, there are a lot of times at the show where we were more comedian than man. Uh, this is one of those situations where you probably have to be more more human than comedian. So meanwhile, it is actually also a narrative. And Zelensky, Ukraine's president, is becoming a global hero, which of course is pissing Putin off. Zelensky came up as a comedian. And you recently said, we're watching Shecky Green, which is a great reference, transform into Churchill. Can you talk about that? Talk about Shecky Green, oh, you, if you'd like to. But this, what you, what's your observation? <laughs> no, I think it's well, just, explain Shecky um, Green for the people who do not know in the back. Well, Shecky Green is sort of a, an old Borscht. You know, there's a, a strong tradition of Borscht Belt tumblers, and Shecky Green was just one of the best. And I meant it. You know, look, comedy is reductive when it comes to its references, but just in the sense of 
watching someone elevate to a position to come from, not to be Drake in this situation, but uh, now we hear, you know, uh, I think it's always impressive to watch someone meet a moment, no matter where they come from. But I think there's a, a special resonance if you feel like it's kind of one of your own, like, you know what it feels like? Do you, do you remember Working Girl? Do you remember the scene yes, in Working yes, Girl when like yeah. she gets in the corner, Melanie Griffith gets in the corner office mm -hmm. and then and everybody she, in the steno pool is like, this, yes. yes! <laughs> like, I, I think there's something like that. Like, yeah, just is that what like, you're all doing in the steno pool of comedy? Yes. <laughs> you're all going, We're all yes. in the steno pool going. Yes. And, and But beyond that though, I think it's tinged with melancholy because of why he has to meet the moment and the fact that like the moment's not over Right. And no, he's in a lot of trouble. He's in a lot of trouble. And, yeah. you know, your fear is that the media can make a hero and a narrative out of a moment. But this is an individual who now has a 40 mile convoy of artillery facing him down. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid this thing. I don't know how you get out of this. And the other side of it is, I think I'm still a little bit in shock as to anytime newsreels come to life, I think there's always a little sense of, oh, right, this shit's way more fragile than we probably gave it credit for. And and that, I think I'm still in a, a little bit of that, like, wait, are madmen still allowed to roll tanks through borders? And there's also a little chauvinism involved, I think, because quite frankly, you know, Saudi Arabia is still bombing the shit out of Yemen. We bomb the shit out of Iraq. Like, I'm not saying it's an analogous situation, but those human beings on the other end of those armaments are as human being-y as the ones in Ukraine that, you know, everybody's got their flags up and their other things. And right now, around the world, there are communities in terrible suffering from Yemen to Palestinians to uh, all around the world. And this story has captivated people. I mean, he's That's using right. some of the techniques of an entertainer to do that. Zelensky, he's using photos, he's using Twitter, he's certainly trying to avail himself to narrative, which is a good narrative, which people get the sort of, you know, Dr. Evil versus the good guy, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you do when you don't have a 40-mile convoy of armaments. Like, I, I have a feeling that if he didn't have to go on TikTok, he wouldn't. <laughs> right, if he didn't. But he's winning the social media game, but... Yeah, I mean, but that's like, that's going to be cold comfort when... Yes, exactly. Like, there's a giant crater near your house. Indeed. So one of the things that, um, meanwhile, the Republicans led by Donald Trump have been cheering on the other guy, Vladimir Putin. Are you shocked, surprised? Neither? You had an interesting tweet last week. You said, uh, for Fox News and Donald Trump, the American left and most of Europe are the evil empire. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, that, uh, that's been for years. That's not anything new. I think for years, it's been pretty clear that they would much rather do a deal with Putin than Pelosi. Like, I know it might be an easy and cheap thing, but like, Steve Bannon, that's his strategy. Like he's working with those guys. You know, they're Hungary and Eastern Bloc dictators are their test kitchens in the way that like McDonald's will test a new sandwich in Columbus. Like they'll test media strategies, they'll test other stuff. That wing of it is in league. They view Putin as a defender of Western civilization. They view him as an ideological brother. Me meaning they want to be him. That's why they cheer him on, presumably. Uh, I don't know if they want to be him. But I think they see his, you know, look, it's an orthodox, Christian, generally homogenous society, very conservative, unfriendly to gays and minorities, like kind of their world. 
isn't it? You know, if they were able to say what they really wanted to say, and sometimes they do say it, depending on which hour of Fox you're watching. Well, speaking of that, Tucker Carlson was one of Putin's early defenders sorry, in all of this. Uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, have you ever heard mm. of him? No. It sounds, it sounds fictitious to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It so sounds like been... something you would make up in a, uh, it's one of Holden Caulfield's friends, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> the one you don't like, right? Um, and he's reeled it in a little now, but Russian state TV even used clips of Tucker Carlson, this person you may or may not have heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, Fox News shows some kind of bizarre support footage. Let's play one clip here. Here Carlson is talking about how Americans have been conditioned to hate Putin. Mm. Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Mm. Is he teaching my children to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Is he trying to snuff out Christianity? Does he eat dogs? Mm. These are fair questions. And the answer to all of them is no. Right. Vladimir Putin didn't do any of that. So why does permanent Washington hate him so much? So your reaction? So that checklist that he ran down mm -hmm. is actually... Uh, used to be on my dating profile. So it would always be, you know, when I was looking for a prospective mate, it was always, do, do, they, do they manufacture fentanyl? Do they eat dog? Are they calling me a racist? If they could pass that test, we were ready to go share a meal or, you know, anything else that we might be able to come. Uh, you know, I, I, when you deal with such a dishonest propagandist, and that is, what he is. There's nothing you can take out of context because none of it is real. You know, he's admitted when he's cornered, he lies. When he doesn't, it's all a game and a performance. I mean, I honestly, I have no idea what the fuck that guy believes. Truly. You know, how does anybody go on television and say, why shouldn't I be rooting for Russia, which by the way, I am. I mean, just set it straight out. Right. Well, that's who I'm rooting for. He did not this. take your parking space, John. That's what it read like to me. He didn't take my parking space. And I well, was like, but isn't that the way we judge uh, dictators and atrocities? Are they nice to me? You know, this, uh, this Hitler guy, you know, yes. Has he done some things, but I got to tell you something always holds the door. Very polite. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways, I think you, then you have to ask the question, why is Rupert Murdoch trying to destroy the fabric of this country? What's in it for him? Answer. What do you, why do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's ideological or he just thinks this is where the money is, but how somebody can in good conscience put a shithead like that on television every night to say those types of things. That's where the responsibility lies in my mind, because it's, you know, I always like to look at it as the difference between ignorance and evil, Right. Ignorance is epidemic and an entirely, in some ways, curable condition. So I like to think that the majority of us are, in our own way, just trying to create the world we would prefer to live in and trying to overcome the blind spots and the ignorance that exists in, in all of us in different ways. And then there's a few people out there who are dishonest and using disinformation to achieve nefarious aims. And that's the category I'd go there. So I try and draw a distinction because I think if you use a broad brush, you're less safe. And I really try hard not to dismiss But it all. does it does work. Yeah. It does work with 
his listeners. But but the difference is those listeners, many of them are redeemable that that have potential to grow beyond that or to get out of it. Or it's the cult leader is the one responsible, not necessarily the flock. The flock may be lost. They may be easily moved by that. And, so how do you separate them when this this stuff does resonate? Uh, I, I My mom listens to Fox News. She's like, well, Putin did anything to me. And I'm like, right. but you love, today. But you love your mom. Yes, yes. Kara, <laughs> not when she's a Fox News watcher. When she you does love this your Fox, mom. Yes, I do. Yes, and I do. And there are things about your mom that are redeemable. Mm-hmm. Is your mom evil? No. Does she have blind spots? Indeed. Is she worth staying with? Well, what's interesting is that the propaganda is so effective that it doesn't ever leave. You know what I mean? It's very difficult. I think a lot of people are in that position of anyone who has someone who's moved down that road. They do listen to it. And more Republicans have a negative view of Joe Biden than of Vladimir Putin, according to one yes. of the Fox News polls. This That's was right. before Russia invaded Ukraine. But, but you, have, you have to try. You can't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife and I play a game. We live in an area that's very uh, red. And so we like to play a game when we're uh, driving somewhere called insurrectionist or just supporter. <laughs> and so when we're driving, we'll see somebody and, you know, you'll just be like, okay, that guy's got, okay, there's a flag on the truck, but nothing else. And that's a flannel coat. I'm going to go with supporter. And then you'll go by and you'll see somebody with like, don't tread on me, no more media bullshit and be like, okay, uh-huh. that's a guy who would probably take a shit in the rotunda if he could get right. it, if, if he had a chance to. But- but it's an important distinction. Your wife sounds very nice playing this game, even though she makes fentanyl and eats dogs, presumably. She actually um, runs a fentanyl dog eating business. It's, you know, it's one of the few businesses and it's drive through so it's convenient. <laughs> <laughs> no ads here now. Anyway, um, all right. So uh, speaking of Tucker Carlson, your most famous moment was indeed, you know exactly who he is, on Crossfire yeah. in 2006, which is a long time ago, um, when you told uh, him, uh, you're hurting America. Uh, it was a big moment for you and for him. And at the time, he really was pushed back on his heels when you did that. Um, what do you think the impact I, I of that was? I didn't mean him personally. I mean, that. I think it's become yeah. sort of that. But I think that moment has been misinterpreted in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. All right. Explain it. Uh, I think people saw it as a, a plea for civility. And it wasn't. It was a plea for honesty. I don't care if people argue or if they get mad at each other, if they are angry. But I don't like dishonesty. I don't like dishonest debate. I have a view of the media as an important part of the immune system against authoritarianism and and fascism and against bad governance. But when you set up the polarities of the media to be purely along the lines of a theatrical fight between the right and the left, that's what I thought was hurting. How would you deal with him today, Carlson, if you had another encounter with him? Boy, I mean, he's, he's very tough to deal with because he understands his own dishonesty. So I don't think that moment could occur again. I think he's developed, you know, it's sort of like jet fighters. They'll release something that sends a thermal trail somewhere else, and then the missile will follow that. I think he's developed evasive maneuvers, one of them being his, I'm, you know, if you say anything that permeates his bullshit, he gets that look on his face like he's receiving a confusion enema. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I can't explain. You're doing the Tucker Carlson face right now. Are you eating dog? <laughs> right, exactly. Are you taking fentanyl I'm and eating dog? I'm just asking questions, sir. I'm just asking questions, sir. I mean, the dishonesty is so. So you couldn't. I think it'd be a lot harder pierce that, I, to pierce that. 
Yeah, because I think in that moment, he didn't, he hadn't quite developed that. He had it to a certain extent, even then. But he said himself, when he's cornered, he lies. And he lies, by the way, lies when he's not cornered too. All right. You have a show, which we're going to get to in a minute, but what would be your first question to him if he was a guest, if he agreed to be a guest on your show? Why did I agree to do this? The first question would be to me, I would ask myself. So that gets back to, I think, the larger point, which is engagement versus non-engagement. Ignorance, I think, is always important to engage with directly. I have a lot of blind spots and I have a lot of ignorance. And when I, there's nothing that pleases me more than to have those illuminated. All right. So in that regard, one of the things you missed, and this was talked about, this idea of disengagement, which you did when you left The Daily Show in 2015. You missed all the Trump years. Mm-hmm. Um, you, well, did, did you leave at the exactly I mean, wrong moment? I, I mean, I know you joked about it before, but- No. It, I mean, Kara, no. I was, I mean, I was alive. I didn't- mm-hmm. I get I that. I know it. you're not dead. I know you didn't miss Thank it. You. But one of the things that was important was your voice. Do you think it was that you disengaged at the wrong time when there might've been an opportunity to get to through to some of these people? Uh, I'm not saying you're the savior of all mankind, but you know, you had a very, <laughs> you had a very important- I was going to say, uh, <laughs> almost everything that I believe and advocated for didn't come to pass and probably got worse. So you could almost say maybe I disengaged at exactly the right time and gave the world a chance. Uh, no, I, I don't, first of all, I think that's overinflating the importance of a voice to a large extent. Um, and I would say there was no dearth of people pointing out his hypocrisies and his excesses and his absurdities and his contradictions. And yet nothing happened. And and he would come out and he would say, you know, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any votes. Although I bet if he tried to vaccinate somebody on Fifth Avenue, he would lose votes. So right. it really is about <laughs> the currency that I was operating in wasn't effective against that anyway. And I do think at times we confuse cultural power with power. And a clip of headlined with a clickbaity, Stewart eviscerates Trump's hypocrisy. It's pleasant. It's a distraction, but ultimately feckless. In a lot of ways, what happens with the show is when you're producing, and, and I think you probably know this from just being in media, when you have to produce content, there are times when you have to feign engagement or you have to feign an emotional connection and a visceral response to something that you don't necessarily feel. And when you get to the point where those moments are coming more frequently than you're comfortable with, when you start to become part of the dishonesty, you have to step back and you have to remind yourself, like, I have to connect to what's, what's real. I don't know. I, I would have to push back on you. Uh, sure. One of the there was actually a column. Wait, that was you just have recent. to push back on me. I have to. I must. What I must. kind of a what I kind of a going, program is this? <laughs> I'm going to push back on you because I feel like you do have an impact. You and I, I have. I think uh, Tucker Carlson's got never gotten more powerful by doing his version of engagement. And one of the things 
um, this was a column, I'm sure you've read it in Variety, to borrow Stewart's phrasing during a time when identifying dishonest bad actors was as urgently necessary as any in recent history, Stewart chose to give up on engagement, making his statements now feel hollow at best. Um, I think I did have an impact right. on people talking about Facebook. I do think- Well, I, can I push back on that for just sure, a bit? Sure, please push back. So what I did was I didn't give up on engagement. I changed the modality of it. I I was there's a I felt there was a certain impotence to the structure in which I was operating that there was a recognition of the tricks and gimmicks of it because it was you know look it's it's why you know what John's done with it and what Trevor's done you know it was time for new approaches maybe to you know the DNA might still be there but I think they created new models of it that could permeate what had become practiced. But let me push back on the other part. Okay. Because that's not giving up on engagement. That's leaving a television show. And what I began to do was engage in the real world in a way that felt more productive to me and more impactful and more satisfying. My wife and I began engaging with, with a food bank in our area and we got a farm that had rescue. We, we, we tried to express our values through action and not talk. You know, a woman named Rosie Torres from a group called Burn Pits 360 uh, reached out because there were a lot of similarities between uh, what we had been dealing with with the 9-11 first responders and community and what veterans had been dealing with. So three or four years ago, we got involved in that. And like, I, I found efficacy in being able to use the things that I've learned and the whatever clout I may still possess to elevate those- Those issues. Not just those issues, but those individuals. Like sometimes it just means a lot to be a hype person for them. Did you ever think about running for public office? Oh God, how do you not? When you yeah, when you yeah. see the shitheads that are yeah. getting, how do you, how do you not when you <laughs> you watch all that and you're like, "Oh my god, what is it this is terrible." Uh-huh. It's sort of like, you know, when you get in a car and the one driver's drunk and you're like, "You ever think about <laughs> taking the wheel?" You're like, "Yeah, I did." So, and like this was I, you know, I don't know that I'd have the temperament for it and I don't know that again that that would be What would be your temperament problem given the politicians we see arrayed before us? I mean, we've got a Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene over here. We've got Trump. We've got- oh yeah, no, I, th- that's it's patience with that. It's it's having the patience that like, how come that person gets to still be here? Why? What make that person leave? Well, like, AOC's done a good job saying that, that yes. saying those things like that. Yes. No, I listen. I also think like there's a lot that goes around that that has nothing to do with passion or care about issues or wanting to help people. That has to do with fundraising and the way the game is played and the, you know, the lack of perspective on it. And sometimes I feel like, well, I I can be more effective on the outside than on the inside. So if it's President Tucker Carlson when he's running, what are you going to do, John? Jesus. Don't even say, like, that's just not even. I don't even say it. It's all over the place. It's all over Washington. You should ask around. What? Yeah. Why? That's the worst. That's terrible. (laughs) <laughs> we'll leave it. You're bumming that. me out, dude. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
more with John Stewart after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. Before discussing his Apple TV Plus show, The Problem with Jon Stewart, I wanted to talk about a problem the internet recently had with Jon Stewart. He came under heat for his comments about podcaster Joe Rogan's troubles with COVID misinformation on Rogan's massively popular Spotify show. As the internet was coming after Rogan and Spotify, and as famous musicians were leaving the platform in protest, Stewart noted that the rhetoric was, quote, overblown. He advocated against abandonment and censorship and for engagement, which seems reasonable, but people did not want to engage with that idea. So I wanted to talk to Stuart about that controversy, if it was a controversy at all, and if nuanced debate is really possible in the age of Twitter. It's hard because, unfortunately, right now, the real conversations that take place for people aren't based on other conversations. They're based on encapsulations and synopses and headlines of those conversations. What we're talking about right now doesn't travel in the same way that a headline, uh, Stewart says Carlson is a traitor and, or whatever it is, or Stewart defends blah, blah, blah. That's what, but that's what travels. Yeah. And, but it's not meaningful. Right. Because conversations aren't meant to be encapsulated. Reductive, it's I like, think is, what, is the word. But it's so reductive. And it's yeah. it's sort of like, you know, I'm not a tremendous social media individual, but now that I'm working again, I get a lot of emails. And it's a lot of, you know, hey, I've got those scripts and I'm going to send those over to you. And then I'll write, thanks. But when I look at it on the page, it looks shitty. Like I'm, <laughs> like I'm going, oh, thanks. <laughs> and so I, I find myself throwing like exclamation points onto like, <laughs> Thanks. You need to get because over that. <laughs> what it does is 
encapsulations and the written word turn the inquisitive into the definitive, right? So like with Rogan, like in that situation. So there's a huge headline. Stewart goes to bat again for Rogan's misinformation. So that's the headline. But what it doesn't say is I wasn't defending his misinformation. I was talking to an expert in misinformation from the Harvard Shorenstein Center. And I was asking, how do you deal with misinformation? So it was a discussion about that with someone that I thought could bring some authority and some perspective to that conversation. Now that gets reduced to some sort of strange defending misinformation. So now people on Twitter are reacting to fuck Stewart, fuck that guy for defending misinformation. I'm done with that guy. Uh, fuck that racist piece of shit, both sides, Stewart. And you watch this thing explode and it has very little resemblance to what actually occurred. And you realize like the force amplifier that is these aggregators is a far more powerful actor than conversation. All right. So say then what you said from what your perspective that then got twisted, because, you know, I've been misquoted as kind of a famous tune for a lot of public officials, et cetera. You know, like, it's not what I meant. I've taken out of context. And sometimes we do make fun of them. That's something you did on the show. You play the whole context. Right. And it was exactly we, we what people thought. We worked really hard mm -hmm. to make sure that the context was correct. Right. So you thought the outrage was a mistake, correct? Or, or what? No. So again, so let's talk about tone. Okay. Right. Because that's important. Absolutely. So. And let's also talk about. Where it's taking place. So we're on a podcast. It's a bunch of comics. And Chelsea Devantes, who's our head writer, says, what would you do? You know, these guys, would you pull your music from Spotify? And so it starts off with that, where I'm saying my music is very, very powerful. And I don't know that I could, you know, pull it from Spotify. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. We're so fucking around. Yeah. But I said, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's a mistake because I, I always feel like engage and maybe that's fruitless. Now that's very different than this is a mistake because it's not, it lacks certainty. I didn't go on there to make a statement of fact that those people were wrong. My opinion was I tend to maybe to my error or, you know, because it, or naive try to engage. I think the one constructive criticism that comes out of it is pulling your music is a form of engagement. And I wasn't considering that. But that's not what went wide. What went wide was goes to bat for misinformation. Yeah. Did you feel caught up in a sort of a tidal wave in a lot of ways or, or a tsunami? Um, I mean, of... I've been in that before. Mm -hmm. And I know, like, I'm only caught up in it because the business model of the internet is arson. You can't make money unless you're setting fires in their mind. So the way that the world works now is people have conversations and within those conversations are small molecules of a lot of potential energy. And then there's an outer ring of let's call them 49ers. <laughs> that are panning for that gold. Ooh, he just said it's an overreaction. 
Yeah. Now, in the larger parliament, it was nothing. It was an offhanded comment meant to suggest that I always like to engage, but sometimes that fucking gets me nowhere too. But boy, when you put that in a headline, it can sound pretty definitive. Now, the secondary and tertiary rings, the mediaites and all those others, now they grab it because, look, they got to eat too. So now everybody's trying to eat. So what you've done is you've taken this thing You've changed the meaning of it to a large extent. You've made that now the fact. So rumor becomes fact. Fact becomes canon all through this information and context laundering system. So essentially, enragement equals engagement, right? Correct? Absolutely. It's, it's, and, and by the way, that's the 24-hour news model, which is why it's so destructive unless it's 9-11 or an invasion of a sovereign country. Because now the gravity of the situation matches the urgency that they gin up. Now the emotional tenor of their work is actually matched by the situation. But in the absence of that, they have to gin up- To create the noise, to create a noise situation. That's right. So, So, So listen, and I'm a big boy, and I've done this for a long time. And it's easy to forget, you know, it's a little bit of like, oh, I haven't played football in a while, so I I just got to get hit a little bit. But I understand that the thing that they're reacting to is a caricature of me, not me. Right. So let's talk about the problem with Jon Stewart. Not the problem with Jon Stewart, but the problem with Jon Stewart. What What was the name you would have called it if it wasn't that? Uh, The real one that I was going to consider it is why not. I was going to call it, originally when I thought of it, and I was talking to my wife about it was why not? Cause it, it was based in that feeling of why not? So we played around with that a little bit and there were a few other titles. Why'd you I think. jump? Why not? Why'd you, it felt too earnest. How do you like doing it? Cause it is earnest. It's a, quite an earnest show. I was, yeah. uh, I was uh, surprised. It's the, you've got your beginning part. Let me explain for people who haven't seen the show. All right. You have a beginning part where you do your John Stewart thing with an audience at a a, a Putin-esque desk, I have to tell you. It's a big desk. Oh, can I tell uh, you? That that was be- it's beautiful. Is it? I can tell you. Like it's You touch sanded. it a lot. I'm you, fidgety. You're fidgety. It's, you it's in place desk. of smoking. But so. nothing's on it, so it's very uh, very feng it. shui. Um, then you do a, a sort of a, a comedy act, essentially, um, or mm-hmm. a, observational. Yeah, like more of, a tr- more of what traditional. people would traditionally think. Of Jon uh, Stewart. Yeah. And then yeah. you have a panel because every show is a different topic. And then you do an interview, a big interview. You did Gary Gensler in the one I I, I saw. Yeah. Um, there's not a team. There's not a lot of people. There's not any stunts mm-hmm. um, beyond it. It's very different from The Daily Show. Talk a little bit about why you did it the way you did this. Um, well, all it really is, it's different from The Daily Show. And I think earnestness is probably a good thing. But, you know, people always viewed satire as kind of a cynical, kind of nihilist. Everybody sucks which isn't. It's, I think satire is generally grounded in idealism and and hope and earnestness. So all we've really done with the show is remove the fictional character who gives you what they really think through an arch perspective. The thing that we all kind of developed at The Daily Show, the, the, whatever. The formula. Formula that, that you thought maybe was, was different was, we turned what were more kind of rote, monologue-esque jokes that were kind of divorced from meaning into a more essayistic format. You know, it's, it's turning 
a punchline into an essay, right? And so for this show, I thought the thing that was missing is let's set the table in the same way that I might've done in the old days, right? And then rather than have a fictional character come on in front of a green screen, let's have actual people who have an actual stake in these actual issues and let them talk. Who you've never heard we'll go of to somebody necessarily. Not- who you, yeah, generally you've never heard of. And then let's go to somebody who might be able to do something about that and say like, hey man, how about doing something about this? This is fucking terrible. And and yeah. Let me just say, the people you're yeah. interviewing are surprised too. I thought Gary Gensler was expecting funny Jon Stewart and got pokey Jon Stewart, like yeah. poking at him. Uh, is that Generally, different? I, I am pokey Jon Stewart. I get that. I get that. But not. But it yeah. was funny pokey rather. He's like, I'm sure he went back to his parent people. I'm like, what was that? Yeah, yeah. Like, because you're like, why do you suck so much, essentially? <laughs> that's what you said. And well, that's funny. That's, that's not, not funny. That's way, funny. I mean, no, but I don't think he was expecting it. Like, when you have the tone, it is, when I say spare, it is spare. And it is serious and earnest. So what are you going for here? I, I'm having a hard time figuring out what you're going for. They're all very good shows, but they're, right. they, you have to really pay attention. And they're substantive. Right. Um, right. what, do, what do you think you're going? Because I, when I think I, everything I make, I'm thinking about what I'm going for. What am I trying? What is my goal here? Um, sort of like what I was saying earlier, which is the goal is identify an absurdity or a problem that seems like there's a solution that could be in the offing. Hear from people that are affected by it and then talk to somebody who might have the ability to change the calculus on it for the better. Um, which, you know, to be perfectly honest, that kind of, you know, I always find that question strange because we are inundated by shitty content. Yes, indeed. And so even if your goal was, I'm trying to not make shitty content, I'm trying to make something that if I think noise is the antithesis of progress, what if we tried to make something that was a an equalizer that tried to bring some clarity to a noisy conversation. In and of itself, I think that's worthy. So I'm always struck by that idea that it was like a lot of the the, the critics, you know, they were like, what's he doing? It's vegetables. And, and do, I saw a lot of that. And do we need this? And I'm like, there's like five CSIs. What do you mean? Well, do we we, need, we like, need those. We need how those. do you gatekeep? television and content like what are you talking about and i understand that like i spend my career talking shit and so you reap what you sow and that is part of you know what we do but i always find the self-justifying aspect of it a little odd so what would be successful to you and what successful say to apple what are they? Illumination? Oh, well, those are very different things. All right. Okay. Those are very different things. I mean, why did you pick Apple over, say, Comedy Central, where ratings obviously are a big deal? Apple, who knows? They made more money from an iPod yesterday than you've yes. made in your entire career. Yeah. But they would let me do what I wanted. Right. And That's why you went with them. Yeah. And it felt entrepreneurial in a way. And I also wanted to create this podcast that we, we wanted to try and create kind of a universe of information where we were boosting some of these voices and figuring things out. It's entrepreneurial to some extent, but also within that, what Apple gets out of it versus like, I'm not sure what they want out of a content company. I really don't. 
I don't know, you know, and in some ways we might be antithetical to their business model. Honestly, I think Apple wants to sell iPhones. I think Amazon wants to sell toilet paper. Right. But that's what I mean, that it, it, it may not be in their interest to have a provocateur. But I do know they've been incredibly supportive and have given us the resources to do it. And, and I think when you think about like what success, success is not just about its impact in the world. It's also about its impact on the people you work with and their sense of satisfaction and growth and engagement. And I really want to make something that I feel like we're challenging ourselves to not to, uh, co-opt a phrase from my benefactors, think mm-hmm. differently, <laughs> but to look at issues, not from the polarity necessarily of- Or like in the le- immediate, or in the immediate, because topicality the, is hard because, you know, everyone's yes. thinking about Ukraine right now and you have a yes. show on the stock market of a story That's that right. was a couple months ago. You focus on one, something I've been quite tough on, which is Robin Hood. How hard is that to get so, people's interest when that's the case? Oh, that I don't know. So the one yeah. thing you can never do with content is mm-hmm. try and figure out if someone's mm-hmm. going to be interested in it. Right. Like you, you well, can you only could rush a what... Ukraine episode. You certainly could. You could. You know people are paying attention to Ukraine. You could rush one of those episodes out. But that's, so one of the things this is also about, one of the, my frustrations with the media is it's eight-year-olds playing soccer. So where's the ball? So there's this sense that there's only one story in the world, but like the stock market goes on, whether Ukraine, you know, what's the first thing they say? Uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. And what will this mean for the stock market? Right, right, yeah, yep. So not climbing on the moment, I think is an advantage, not a disadvantage for the types of things we want to talk about. Right. I like to think of themes. And one of the big themes for me is that we are told that we live in a free market capitalist society. And everything that I see tells me we are not. If you give corporations access to the money hose, that's stimulus. But if you give people access to the money hose, that's socialism. Right. Uh, this one is about if you turn on the news, you will see the stock ticker and the Dow Jones Industrial. And you would be you would be reasonable to assume that, okay, this is I better pay attention to this because this is obviously the pulse and blood pressure of the American economy. But it's not. It's in no way indicative of it. In fact, it's an utterly skewed version of what is the actual economy. Those numbers that you see are owned by uh, a small ten percent of the country owns eighty percent of those assets. It's like it's just skewed. What you're trying to do here is quite substantive in topics that are not. Do you think if we're in a culture that is so twitchy and reductive, which is I think you described well, how do you break through? Because Tucker Carlson, getting back to him, has been very successful in being reductive. Can you be successful in doing what you're doing, which is, which is, which is? <laughs> vegetables in a lot of ways, D- perhaps delicious vegetables, but in that way it is. Um, so I know, you know, I'm a firm believer that you develop an internal barometer of morality and quality. And you work with people who will be honest, who will tell you tough things that you need to hear and will try and keep as clear an eye on that vision of funny, smart, thoughtful, interesting as we can and fair. 
but it, it is also reductive. There is no, you know, comedy is in its purest form an incredibly reductive. You know, we are uh, purveyors of bigotry. Everything we do is, hey, men, you women do, but, you know, and yeah. if you could be the king of disclaimers. Women, I got to tell you, I mean, obviously not all women, mm -hmm. but a lot of <laughs> I mean, women love to shop. I mean, there's certain women, obviously, in different economic yeah. stratus that uh, would have a difficulty in terms of uh, gathering. But but in general, I guess what I'm saying is upper that's middle class- That's the woke, unwoke comic you just did. Women, yeah. That's yeah. going to be my next special. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think one of the beautiful, frustrating things about creating something is it is no longer yours when it leaves your purview. And it's why you have to work with the people you work with as well as you can to create content that best exemplifies the intentions that you wanted to put into it and, and are the right recipe of fun and interesting and smart and thoughtful as best you can do. But when it goes, it goes. And how that breaks through or how it's received is no longer within your control. So um, you took over The Daily Show in 1999 when Bill Clinton was in office. Facebook mm -hmm. wasn't a thing. Fox News was only a few years old. Right. When you're coming back, is it fundamentally different now? So do you think about making things as fundamentally different? No, I don't. I mean, part of it is my brain is is maybe not as elastic as, you know, Technology to me is still an alien force. So uh, that part didn't change. And the elements of what you're talking about now were there when I left. They might not have been there to the same extent, but they were certainly there. I mean, I find the only thing that really has changed is you have to be more cognizant. Like a lot of times, you know, we, we, we have a young staff and they'll say, that thing you said, like, that's going to cause a problem. And I'll say, is it a, is it a problematic thing? And they'll say, well, I'm, I'm, I, I don't necessarily think it's a problematic thing, but I know how it may be taken. And then I'll have to say either like, all right, well, let's do that. But what I try and tell them is you can't outsmart the mob because the mob exists in, in so many different, every interest group has a mob. That's why I don't, you know, people say like, is there a, you know, cancel culture and a woke culture? But in truth, the internet is just a random wandering of a variety of mobs. Every interest, everything you have has people who want to engage honestly, people who want to engage with interest, people who are open and villagers with pitchforks and torches. So the right has it, the left has it, music has it comedy has it. We are all, it's, it's a feudal system. So when you look at this, has, I don't mean to say has time passed you by, but you were talking about a different, <laughs> you were talking about a different a era. Is, is, has, has, you, has, you have the Twitters, the Facebooks, all this stuff has gotten this enormous power and enormous damage. And you've got a, a population that's addled and streaming and getting all kinds of stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Can you catch their attention? 
you know, it, a lot of your stuff reminds me of Tom Snyder. It reminds me of, uh, there's a lot kinds of shows I see in this. Charlie right. Rose with 100% less sexual harassment, for example. <laughs> but, you know, has, has, that's, that's, that should be your tagline. What do you think? Will Apple like that? No. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, well, let me, let me address the, the first thing first, which is, has time passed you by? Um, yes. Time passes all of us by. I'm not going to pretend that I'm not 60 next year. You know, we had a moment on The Daily Show, the kind of moment that is beautiful and surprising. And it was a moment that came, I was already, you know, 35, 40 years old. So it was one that I could really appreciate. But what I appreciate more than any of it is the opportunity to have lived a, a life, a creative one that I never thought would have been possible. And in the moments when, you know, I was working for a plate of hummus down at the comedy cellar and walking home and down to Canal Street at three in the morning and just looking up at the sky and thinking, I'm the luckiest motherfucker around. And I don't think I've ever lost that. I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a yearning to be, I guess what you would consider like on top or relevant. Like I, I'm grateful that my mind still works the way it works and that there's people that are willing to let me explore topics and do things that I think are worthwhile. And there's streaming and technology and all these other things, but maybe that means there's also still room. Like in some ways I feel like it's a better pursuit now than it was before. But I also would say, what's my choice? is your choice then to not make things. If you think to yourself, the world has passed me by and it's like, and by the way, like you get that online, shut the fuck up, go yeah. away. Yeah, yeah. But they're not, why would I listen to them? Why wouldn't I continue to make things if I am allowed to? And by the way, if Apple didn't allow me to, maybe somebody else would. Or now with the democratization of content, maybe you end up back at the cellar working for hummus and still, because ultimately it's a pursuit of expression. Yeah, 100%. John Seward on Substack. I see it. I see it. <laughs> Patreon, I'm going to yeah. go OnlyFans. <laughs> anyway, John, this has been great. What an interesting discussion. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, it, Kara. Thank you. It's very, very nice to meet you. Way is a production of New York Times Opinion. This episode was produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. Edited by Naeem Araza, with original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Sabaro, and fact-checking by Andrea Lopez-Cruzado and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, Christina Samuluski, and Irene Noguchi. Noguchi. 